Well, I toyed with the idea of actually climbing this thing and preaching from the very top, but I'm not sure if that would have been, I don't think I would have actually made it. I probably would have fallen at some point, and then that would have put Mitchell on the spot, and he would have had to come up here and preach while I was rolling around in pain. Hopefully, I will not fall back into this thing because it's a bit cumbersome up here, but this is just the beginning of things to come as we uh, make our way to better things when this building is done and finished. Uh, With that, we are uh, returning this morning to an old friend, and that old friend is the Psalms. Uh, For six summers now, we have spent time together pondering the Psalms, and that's what we're going to do again this summer. And where I want to get us started is in Psalm 13. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 13. We're going to be reading the Psalm in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1, let us now hear God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider And answer me, O O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Out of the various types of psalms that make up the entire Psalter, wisdom psalms, royal psalms, sad psalms, psalms of anger, as well as praise psalms, if I were to ask you what type out of all those psalms is the most prevalent, what would you say? Do what? I heard it. Okay, that's that's the obvious answer. When you think about what uh, the, the word psalms mean, it means praise. Uh, the beginning, very title of the entire Psalter is songs of praise. So if I were to ask, what type of psalm is most prevalent? Well, if you're about to say praise again, don't. It's actually the wrong answer. It's not the most prevalent type. No, that actually belongs to the type known as lament. Lament psalms, those are the most prevalent psalms, types of psalms in the Psalter. Now you think about what does lament mean? Well, the language of lament is language that expresses one's most painful emotions to God, especially when they find themselves surrounded by outward trials, overwhelmed by inner turmoil. Technically, a psalm of lament is a song where the writer lays open before God his pain and perplexity, his angst, anger, sorrow, and sadness. And he does so in the desperate hope that God will deliver him from some crisis, whether that crisis be one of personal despair, persistent defeat, painful disease, or most acutely, when the prospect of imminent death is upon him. But simply, at the heart of lament is loss. Loss that's plunged the psalmist into a state of disorientation that in turn leads him to the very brink of despair. 
And many times in the Psalms of Lament, we find the writer expressing the intense feeling that his most poignant loss is actually the loss of God himself. He feels as if God has deserted him. Now, in saying all of that, when we come to Psalm 13, we should immediately recognize it for what it is, that it is a psalm of lament. For in this psalm, we encounter the author, whom we're told is David, acknowledging his deep sorrow in the face of feeling abandoned by God. And yet, by the end of this psalm, we find that somehow David's move from deep despair to confident conviction to confidently trusting in the very one that he had thought had abandoned him. Now, in order for us to to see how this particular psalm works, we need to take note of its simple three-part outline. Each part of this outline contains two verses each. Verses 1 and 2, we hear David's painful questions that actually express or articulate his despair. Then in verses 3 and 4, we hear David's prayer for deliverance. And it's an intentional prayer for deliverance. And then finally, in verses 5 to 6, we hear David confess a renewed sense of trust and hope in his God. And you can actually see the movement, how David moves from tumult to prayer to trust. And it's this movement that makes this psalm actually such a help for us. It shows us how we too can move from despair to trust in our own lives, of how we can go from feeling abandoned by God, which we do experience at times, to in turn having a renewed conviction that God will never leave us or forsake us. In this psalm, we're given a map that helps us travel with David from despair to trust, to trusting in the God of our salvation. So let's look at this map. Let's look at this psalm. And what we do, the first thing that we encounter is this, David's daily despair. His despair at feeling as if God had really left him. You hear this in his questions in verses 1 to 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? And every day have sorrow in my heart. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Now, unlike some of the other Psalms, we're not told of the actual historical circumstances out of which this particular Psalm arose. Now, all we can know for sure is that David felt alone and abandoned. Everywhere he turned, he experienced not help, but hurt. The hurt of no longer sensing God's smiling face the hurt of being bombarded by the burden of unending sorrow, and the hurt of knowing that at any moment his enemy might prevail over him. And as this psalm makes clear, this wasn't a recent phenomenon in David's life. No, it was something that had been going on for quite some time. And in the midst of it, what David wanted to know most of all was, how long? How long will God let this last? How long must I endure the weight of feeling as if God is no longer there? Or even more painfully, as if God possibly doesn't care. How long until God fulfills his promise, not only to deliver me, but for David to exalt me, to exalt me to the throne? You see, even though we don't know the actual historical circumstances of the Psalms, it seems to have been written between the time after David was anointed king and before the time he was exalted as king. 
And in this time between his anointing and his coronation, David found himself on the run. We read about this in 1 Samuel, uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. And he was on the run from Saul, who happened to be king at the time. And being on the run, David found himself for a long period of time in the wilderness. He was in a physical wilderness, but being in that physical wilderness pressed home the reality that he was also in a spiritual wilderness. The spiritual wilderness of of being uh, in a place where he no longer sensed God's presence. And it's in this state that he cries out, How long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me completely? Is this it, God? Am I really on my own? Have you deserted me forever? Are you simply going to stand by as I wither and waste away in the wilderness? How long, O Lord? And for some of us, if not all of us, David's hard and honest questions sound familiar. They sound a lot like the questions we've wondered in our own histories, questions that we're often quick to to stuff away. We have them but we're also quick to stuff them away into the recesses of our hearts so that no one will actually see that we're struggling. But thankfully, that's not what David did. He refused to stuff and hide. He didn't disguise his difficulty. He didn't suppress his emotions. No, he acknowledged them. He acknowledged them honestly to God, even as he was feeling as if God was absent. And in this way, David would have wholeheartedly agreed with Calvin, who once wrote, we're apt to shut up our affliction in our breast, a move that can only aggravate and trouble and embitter the mind against God. But there's a better way, says Calvin. And that better way is the way of disburdening, of disburdening our cares and anxieties to God. And thus, as it were, pouring out our hearts to God rather than trying to hide our hearts from God. And you see, that's one of the great aids of the Psalms of Lament. For they not only show us how to disburden our cares, they actually give us the grace-filled privilege to do so, of honestly acknowledging and admitting our confusion, our fears, our failures, our anxieties, and yes, even our anger, and doing so before and to the one who alone can do something about it. And that one, of course, is God. The God who isn't distant, but near, because He's our covenant-keeping God. He's our creator and our covenant-keeping God. And in this way, we're able to see that although David was truly in despair, he wasn't in total despair. How do we know this? Well, because David addressed his painful questions, not to empty space, but to his sovereign God. In speaking about this, J. Todd Billings, in his book, Rejoicing in Lament, writes, total despair, with no hope at all, doesn't pray. For even the most despairing protests of the Psalms still bring their pleas before God. Even the most shocking psalms expressing outrage, fear, and despair are doing so before God. And and that in itself is a form of praise, for it acknowledges on the one hand our helplessness, but on the other, it confesses that God, even the God who seems to be far away, is alone sufficient to handle our questions and deal with our hurt. 
In his daily despair, David disburdened his heart. But notice he didn't stop there. For from his despair, he then moved into intentional prayer. Intentional prayer for deliverance. And that move is vitally important. From despair, expressing it, to then intentional prayer. You see, the Psalms of Lament, although they encourage us to express our pained emotions, never encourage us to simply express them for their own sake. In other words, with the encouragement to express our emotions, the Psalms of Lament invite us to pray intentionally, to pray specifically in such a way that we articulate our need to God. We articulate our emotions, but we also articulate our need, trusting that in prayer we'll find ourselves transformed. Again, remember the movement of this psalm. It begins with David questioning if God was absent, but it continues with David asking God to act. Look at his prayer in verses 3 and 4. He says to God, Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Faced with distress and despair, a feeling as if God wasn't there, David did the one thing that doesn't come naturally to us. He prayed. We could put it this way. His feelings of being deserted didn't keep him from prayer. Often happens in our life, doesn't it? We're so down, we don't feel like praying. But David realized something, that when he was down, he realized the only thing he could do was pray. His distress and his despair drove him to prayer. In his despair, David took it to the Lord. In prayer and in praying, David asked for three things specifically. First, he prayed that God would look at him. Look at me in my despair. See my turmoil, O Lord. See and know me as your afflicted child. Second, he prayed that God would answer him. His feelings told him that that God would remain silent, yet still he asked God to answer him because what he needed most was a word from his God. And then thirdly, he prayed that God would lighten his eyes, which is a poetic way of asking God to preserve and restore him by opening the eyes of his faith so that he could see once again God's mercy and grace. Consider, answer, and give. Put simply, David was asking that God would manifest his faithfulness to David in the midst of his crisis. Look at me, for you've promised to be my God. Answer me, because you've promised to hear and respond to my cries. Rescue me, for you've promised to give me your life. Most of all, David was asking God to show himself that God would show himself who he really is, that he is the God who faithfully keeps his promise. And my friends, in this psalm, that's what God did. God answered David's prayer. But notice he didn't do it by changing David's circumstances. This psalm never mentions a literal rescue for David. We can read about it in 1 Samuel, but here it's not mentioned. Instead, what we're shown here is that God changed David in the midst of his painful circumstances. God saw David. God answered David. God rescued David. And we know this because David's trust was renewed. Something happened in David's life to get him to the point from saying, how long, O Lord, daily distress, daily despair, to at the very end, 
once again being reoriented to his God. In this way, David's prayer in verses 3 or 4 actually serves as the hinge that enabled David to make the move from doubt to faith. Yes, deliverance hadn't come, but David's trust had returned. And, and that's the real rescue of this psalm. For through the pain and the sense of loss, David's faith was actually strengthened. We could put it this way, in his sovereignty, God used the feeling of absence in David's life to, in the end, make David more and more into the man God always intended him to be. For his distress, again, drove him to his God, and God alone was his life. God alone is our life, not our circumstances, not our surroundings. There is only one who is life, and it's our creator and redeemer. And in coming to his God and praying to his God, we see that David was actually changed. And he was changed as he prayed. And notice in his prayer, what was he doing? He was remembering and recalling and rehearsing God's steadfast love to him in the past. His present, he couldn't sense it. So he stopped and he began to rehearse what God had done for him in the past. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And then look at the end of verse 6. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. You see, in prayer, David remembered and recalled and rehearsed how God's faithful love had delivered him in the past. How God's love had rescued him from lions and bears when he was a young shepherd boy. How God's steadfast love and bountiful goodness had enabled him to defeat the giant with a single stone. Prayer, David remembered and rehearsed how God had given him his unbreakable promise that he, a shepherd boy, would indeed become the shepherd king. As David pondered God's steadfast love and prayer, he found that his faith in God began to return so that he could now say in hope, my heart will again rejoice in God's salvation and I will sing to the Lord. In prayer, David was reassured of this great promise that no matter what, no matter his, no matter our circumstances, no matter his or our feelings, God will never leave or forsake his people. No, God would see David just as he will see us through to the very end, to God's own end and purpose for our lives. Now, let's be honest. This is great for David. But how can we be sure of this? Well, ultimately, we can be sure of this because God has dealt bountifully with us in Jesus through Jesus' own lament. You see, Jesus is the true David. And in being the true David, this is his psalm of lament, a psalm that only points to him, but that he himself prayed and lived for us on our behalf. And because this is so, I want to ask you, do you see Jesus in Psalm 13? Look at it again if you have your Bibles open. Just scan it. Do you see Jesus in this psalm? You see him on the cross, wondering and wrestling with the questions, how long, O Lord? How long, O Father? Will you forget me completely as I bear the sins of my people? How long will you hide your face from me as I endure your judgment in their place? 
How long must I endure this overwhelming sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemies, the enemies of sin and Satan and death, triumph over me as I give my life for theirs? My friends, Jesus knows what it is not only to be, not only to feel abandoned, but to actually be abandoned, to be abandoned by God, by his Father. For he was abandoned for us so that we might be brought in to God's bountiful love and restoration. You see, Jesus praying, consider me and answer me, my Father, and do so for their sake. Do you see him as he sleeps the sleep of death? For he willingly went into death, the death we deserved for our rebellion. Because he went into death and through death, we can be assured that the enemy of death will never triumph over the one who belongs to him. Jesus slept the sleep of death that we might experience the life of his restoration and resurrection, not only now, but forever. My friends, from this psalm, we're assured that Jesus is indeed our only hope and trust, that he's our salvation. For in Jesus, we've been promised that God will never forget us. No, Jesus was abandoned, abandoned on the cross that we might be received forever, that God's face in Jesus might be on us from this time forth and forevermore, regardless of our feelings and regardless of our circumstances. You you see, when we're in circumstances that are difficult, The voices of God is against you. The the voices of God is not for you become very loud. That's why we must again and again return to God's word that says in Christ, God is for us. That says to us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ now. You see, it's only this solid reality that that alone has the power to bear us up in seasons of darkness and despair, when it feels as if God's no longer there. But the truth is, Jesus, in Jesus, God is there. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He's promised to be with us even unto the end of the ages. And in Jesus, as we've seen, as we've gone through Romans the past several weeks, God is at work using all things for our good to accomplish his purpose, which is conforming us to the image of Jesus. And this is true whether we can actually discern it or not. It is true because it's true in the gospel that God is there even when all we can say, maybe even get out, is why and how long. Friends, no matter your circumstances, no matter what accusations the devil may level against you, no matter how thick the darkness of despair may become, what this psalm teaches us is that God won't allow lament to be our final song. For in Christ, God has and will deal bountifully with us. And when and where this truth grips our hearts, really grabs hold of our hearts, there we'll be able to to begin to actually rejoice in our lament. It's not as if we can only lament, and when we lament, we can't rejoice, and when we rejoice, we can have little lament. No, in this now time, it's rejoicing mingled with lament, or lament mingled with rejoicing. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. 
We are a people who are always rejoicing and always in sorrow because we live in this now time where things are still broken, where things are still on the way. We're on the way. And yet, in those times of lament, the truth of what God has done for us, that He is for you, that He has dealt bountifully with you in Christ, enables us to sing a song of praise, even as we sing a psalm of lament. Because Jesus alone, now and forever, He alone is our only comfort in life and in death. Well, I want to conclude very quickly just some practical points. Practical points of application that we can actually derive from not only this psalm, which is this psalm of lament, but all the psalms of lament. First, in light of the psalms of lament, always keep in mind that it's not anti-Christian to experience emotional turmoil. Whether that turmoil be the experience of intense sorrow, prolonged depression, bouts of anxiety, or even feelings if God's absent from your life, don't buy into the lie that says real Christians don't experience these things. We do. They happened in David's life. That was a man after God's own heart. They've happened in the lives of countless saints throughout the centuries. They happened to our Lord, who was the man of sorrows, who sorrowed to bring us ultimate joy, the joy of his forgiveness, his freedom, and his future. And in that future, all present sorrow will one day give way to perpetual joy. Second, when you experience emotional turmoil, and you will at some point, don't neglect prayer. Again, prayer is the pathway that leads from distress to trust. God uses prayer in our lives to reorient us to Him as our all in all. Therefore, when you're downcast, and you may today be downcast, don't neglect prayer. Take this psalm, other similar psalms, pray them as your own. Lay your hearts open before God. You see, that's the wonder of the Psalms. This is our prayer book. When we don't have the language to address God, He's given us His language. Language that enables us to articulate whatever it is that we're going through to Him in prayer. Third, when you pray, rehearse God's faithfulness. Remind yourself of those times in your own history when God did beyond what you could even ask or think. You have those stories. We often forget those. It's actually very good to remind yourself of those times when God did something that just astounded you. And as you do that, remember the great point in history, your history of whenever he has dealt bountifully with you in Jesus. Because again, it is the cross that says to us, God is for you. It's not our circumstances. It's not our feelings. It is the cross that says God is for you, that he is faithful and he will see you through. And then lastly, from this psalm, we learn that corporate worship, our gathering, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, must include the psalms of lament. If you take a look at the title of this psalm, To the Choir Master, in other words, this psalm was meant to be sung in the corporate worship of God's people. Because when we come to worship, we don't leave our struggles our fears, our confusions, our anger, our anxiety at the door. You may think that way. Like, I've got to get back together before I come into this place. No, we, we can't leave those things at the door. And the very thing you should be doing is bringing them right in with you and offering them to God. Offering them to Him who is good, who will see you through, 
and who is for you. In worship, we offer our sorrow to God in trust and in hope, in trust and in hope of the day when all our songs of lament will indeed bleed into the unending song of praise in the presence of our loving and faithful God, our God who has shown us and who surrounds us with his steadfast love in Jesus. In our lament, we can rejoice. And when we rejoice, don't forget to lament because we're all still on the way. So look to Christ, hope in Christ, and let us pray. Our Father, we pray that our eyes would indeed be fixed upon Jesus, who himself went into the wilderness for us, who was abandoned on the cross that we might be brought in. And we have been brought in, in him. He is the one who is even now exalted at your right hand. He is the king, ruling over all things, using all things at his disposal for our good. We know this does not immediately take away all of our confusion or pain or sorrow, but it does enable us to lay it at his feet. So help us by your spirit to do that in response to your word and even now as we come to this good table. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.